Okay, let's wait. Let's pray. Father, as your word was read for us, we catch in our mind's eye the gathering of Israel, the elders, the warriors, at Hebron to make David their king. It is a massive gathering of your people. This morning, Lord, as we gather here, though our numbers cannot match the array of soldiers and elders on that day, nevertheless, Lord, we gather here in your name to acknowledge that you are king. And we pray that as we come before your throne, as we come to worship, as we come to hearken to your word, that your spirit will move in our presence, that the words that come from you will be applied in our lives, that, Lord, this church, our church, this flock, would then be able to go forth to glorify you, to serve you, to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's okay. I can see it in my laptop. The 10 verses will be split into three sections, and I'll go through each of these three sections. And I pray that as we come to the Word of God together, we may be able to glean some of the applications of what happened on that glorious day when King David was made king of all Israel. When the tribes gathered at Hebron, they said a few things. They acknowledged a few things, which was already read for us, and I will not go through them again. It is important to look at the background and the history leading up to the events that was read for us in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I turn this back to um, 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that has a similar write-up describing the events of that day. If you were to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you would find that tribe after tribe, all the 12 tribes of Israel will be mentioned. And with each tribe, the numbered warriors, soldiers, archers, spearmen, foot soldiers would be called out tribe by tribe. And if you add up all these numbers, I tried to use the calculator, and then I realized that I could actually find the numbers in some of the Bible commentaries, and then I went into search. It, they numbered 340,000 elders and soldiers. Now, that's a huge 
number. Almost the entire nation of Israel, save the women folk and the young people, and those perhaps too old to make the trip, or the injured who can no longer carry a sword or a spear or a shield. They gathered in Hebron to recognize David to be king of all Israel. Now, it's important to note that before this time, David was king, but only of one tribe, Judah. And the rest of the tribes, the 11 other tribes, recognized Saul's son. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Ishbosheth, as king. So the kingdom of Israel is divided into the north and the south. One tribe recognized um, David. The 11 other tribes recognized Saul. It's interesting that um, this morning as I was praying with you on the prayer of confession, and allow me to read what we have prayed together. Almighty God, forgive our lack of faith and vision and empower us to be in service to you even when we do not feel the support of others. I think King David would smile if he were here this morning amongst us because he only had the support of one tribe and not the others. Nevertheless, he kept faith and continued to serve. It was only after Ishbosheth was murdered, if you want to read, you can go to 2 Samuel 4, that the other tribes turned to recognize David as their king. And I put down there in, yeah, in a yellow rectangle. If you see this further on in the slides, these would be where some of the applications of the verses that we are going through can be applied to us. And in this particular instance, my thoughts were like this, that it would indeed be very tragic that as Christians, we would only recognize Jesus as our King if or when all our other choices and options fail us. Let that sink into us. And may our application be such that we place Jesus first and foremost, and not last or as a backup when our own plans, our own hopes, our own options or choices fail. Then as a last resort, we turn to Jesus. That was what happened to the 11 other tribes. It is only when their king was killed that they turned to David. We will see that they already know that David was to be God's anointed, but still they clung on to a false king, a king that was not anointed by God. There's another background piece pretty important in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here, Israel's elders came to Samuel 
very early on to ask for a king, in fact, to demand for a king to lead them like all other nations. And the king they got at that time in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is Saul. This is not yet David. This was Saul. Now, again, I put it in this rectangle. And the application here is that we must not forget that we are a holy nation. God is holy, and we are in turn a called-out people set aside for God, and thus we are holy. And as a people belonging to God, we are not to be like the other nations, nor to chase after their gods. The temptation is very great for us to look around at the other nations, the other tribes, the non-Christians, and we want to chase after their wealth, their gods, their strategies. But we must always come back to remember that we are a holy nation, set apart by God. And we should not echo the prayers of Israel when they came to Samuel and demanded for a king when God is already their king. They want a king among themselves like all the other nations. Obviously, Samuel was distressed, and so was God. I didn't put it here, but God actually sent a drought as a punishment to the people of Israel. We won't go into that story. Now, in rejecting Samuel as their judge, they are in reality rejecting God himself. In fact, the, the word of God came to Samuel after the Israelite elders demanded for a king and soothed Samuel with these words. God, in fact, told Samuel, it is not you they have rejected, Samuel, it's not your fault, but they have rejected me, God, as their king. It is not you, Samuel, that the Israelites have rejected, but they have rejected me, God, as their king. Allow me to read through you these verses from 1 Samuel chapter 12. The incidents that triggered the gathering of the elders to demand a king from Samuel. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, for the Lord has set a king over you. This is Saul. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both of you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Now, as I was reading this, it occurred to me that 
although God granted the Israelites their wish to have a king like the other nations, but if you read these verses, you realize that the king is actually a non-player because the king will also be judged as the people if they do not obey God or follow God's commands. The king doesn't come in between and take over from God, nor render God's commands inoperable. Two times it says, both you and the king need to follow the commands of the Lord your God. If that so, is good. If not, both you and your king will be punished. What good of, what kind of a king is that? <laughs> that he will similarly be punished with the people. But that's what they wanted, and that's what the Israelites got. A human king, like the other nations. Quickly, under compare those occurrences in the past and the present, and to tease out some application for us this morning. Now, God can, and He does in the past, chastise or punish Israel's disobedience by raising foreign powers against them. We have read this so many times in the Old Testament. God raised the Ammonites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, and the Penangites. No. <laughs> and every time when they cry out to God in confession, God will deliver them with a judge. But here, the sin committed by this generation of the Israelites in comparison is even greater than the sin of their forefathers, which is in disobedience. So in the past, God sends Israel a deliverer, a judge. And remember, Samuel is a judge. The book of Judges, you can read all the names of the judges. God sends a judge in response to the people's cry for deliverance after they have repented of their sin and acknowledged their disobedience. They go on their knees, they put on sackcloth, and God hears them. And God sent a deliverer in the person of a judge to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies. And then they walk with God for a few years and they go back to sin again and this cycle is repeated. But this time, they said no more. We want a king and we shall see why. In this present case, when the leaders, the elders came to Samuel, there was no repentance. They do not plead for deliverance. They do not go to Samuel and, and tear off their, their robes and their clothes and ask Samuel to intercede for them. None of that was recorded for us. In fact, they demanded for a king. And Samuel 12, 12 says, When you saw that Nahash king of the Ammonites were moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. In essence, Israel wants a deliverer without repentance. 
They wanted a king so that even future deliverances can be assured without having to trust in or obey God. That's why their sin is even greater than that of their forefathers who came to their senses, acknowledged their sin in repentance, cried out to God, and God delivered them. Some applications. Not all the trials that we face in life is necessarily a judgment from God. Although, although, He does let us go through some challenges, some trials from time to time to refine us, to strengthen us, to mold us, like the potter and the clay. We do get squeezed sometimes. We do get put into the fire to refine us into purer and purer gold, as it were. Some trials, however, are the result of our own sin, our disobedience, our indifference to God. Only we will know, and we need to turn to God to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and see if there are any iniquities within us and confess it to God. So in such cases where the trials and tribulations that we go through are an avenue in which God is trying to get our attention, then let us not be like the Israelites asking for deliverance without going through the path of confession and repentance. Psalms 51, one of my favorite psalms in verse 17 says, A broken and contrite heart thou wilt not despise. We need to come on our knees to God and ask for God's forgiveness, that He will wash us and we shall be white as snow and not ask for a king or a deliverer without repentance. We come now to the proper passage that was read for us. So in Samuel chapter 5 and the first five verses that was read for us, we noted three things. First, the elders acknowledged their physical ties or similarities with David. They said, we are your bone and flesh. Secondly, they recognized that David's leadership over them in the past, even when Saul was still their king. Thirdly, the elders submitted themselves to the word of God as they recognized that David was actually God's choice to be their king. I'll take these three observations in turn. Now, by saying we are your bone and your flesh, the elders acknowledge their essential unity. Blood and flesh, same, united. Unity rooted in their common ancestor, their father, Jacob, whom God renamed as Israel. They look back in their history and acknowledge before David when they came to him in Hebron and said, we are your bone and your flesh. Now, it is significant they said to David, we are your bone and your flesh. Instead, they did not say, you are one of us or you are with us. There is a difference 
in saying you are one with us or you are one of us compared to we are one with you. If they had said you are one of us, it's even worse. It means that we are right and now, now we accept you. Now you can join us. Now you have proven yourself. There's a pride in saying you are one of us. But no, they said we are one with you. They acknowledge that unity in flesh and bone. We know that even from the beginning in the records for us in the Old Testament, there was a problem with unity among the sons of Jacob, right? We see this. Joseph was hated, was really big bullied by the brothers. Saul himself was of one tribe, Benjamin, David of Judah. They can't get along. So there was this unity. At this point, when they came together in Hebron, they finally see themselves as one nation. Not two, not northern, not southern, but one. And this is critical to David's leadership of the whole nation. I didn't put it here, but some of the applications we can get from this is that if you look around in today, the modern times of the church, we are so splintered. We have so many tribes, so many churches, so many denominations. Many non-Christians that I know have often told me, your church is so complicated. They don't understand why this church, that church, different. On that day, the entire tribe of Israel came together as one nation. And may our prayers continue to be that our church here on this earth will be one, truly in spirit. Secondly, the people recognize that David has always been the king in what he does. Remember, Israel wanted a king who will go out before them to fight their battle. So in those days, it is the king that leads the army to fight against the enemies. Saul, if you read through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and some of the verses, defaulted on this responsibility. Saul probably said, go, I stay back, you fight for me. But not David. It was David who does what a king ought to have done. He was the one who went out to fight against Goliath. He was the one who led the Israel's in, Israel, Israelite army in battle, although as one of the commanders. So the elders recognized that even when Saul was their king, David acted more a king than he did. And so in choosing David, they are choosing someone who has proven himself. A man mighty of valor, a warrior. And they turned to him. Thirdly, they told him that we know God chose you. Now, they knew that earlier on, but at that plane, the 340,000 elders and warriors came together and they acknowledged to David that they knew he was actually God's chosen. Now, just some verses. So, David was first appointed by Samuel in the presence of his brothers in 1 Samuel 16. You can read that. 
the brothers came, one by one was called by Jesse, the father, before Samuel and said, no, not this one, no, not this one. Do you have any other sons? Oh, one more, the youngest one. He is in the padang, tending to the kambing. Bring him in. And Samuel anointed David as king in the presence of the family and some people. So that's the first time that Samuel anointed David as king. Now, after the death of Saul, the tribe of Judah made David king over them in Hebron. So he was there anointed in the bigger tribe of people, the whole tribe of Judah, the second time. So this time, it's actually his third coronation or anointment. So all Israel knew that David was one uh, was the one that God has designated as to be king in Saul's place. The references are there. And even Saul knows that. Even Saul knows that. So if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 21, you will read the words of Saul. He recognized that David is actually the rightful king. So this is the final and the third anointment of David as king over all Israel. Let me move on to the second segment, the capture of Jerusalem. Again, I'm not going to read through that was already read for us. This segment, verse 6, 7, and 8, was actually not part of the lectionary. <laughs> I can't pronounce that. It was actually left out. So what I was asked to preach on was actually verse 1 to 5 and then verse 8 and 9 and 10. It's quite hard. Uh, verse 9 and 10. I, I, it, decided to add this in, although it has some challenges, but some of the things that we can learn from here is applic applicable for us. In, in Chronicles 11, 4, 5, 8, first part of 5, David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is, before it was called Jerusalem, it was Jebus. And that's why the people from Jebus are Jebusites. We are staying in Penang, so we are Penangites. You know, get the, 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 the similarity? So it was called Jebus. And the Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in. It's like if Gandalf taking his path, boom, you shall not pass. <laughs> they were so confident. Until this time, until the time when Jebus fell, it was a small Canaanite city, a Jebusite city in the center of Israel. So all around were the 12 tribes of Israel. Right here at this center was a Jebusite city, unconquered. After 400 years of God's command to Israel to take the promised land, Jebus was not um, conquered by Israel. It remained in Canaanite or Jebusite hands until that fateful day that was read for us, the capture of Jerusalem. Because of its location, so this is when I turn you to the first page of our bulletin. Now, pastor was asking me, what is this, Agamna? <laughs> I'll keep you referred to this. So this is actually a man's historical, uh, you know, they think that this is what it looks like. But this was Jebusite, a fortress. And if you look at Yukana, the bottom left-hand corner, the dark patch there, in, in the coloured version, there's actually some water there, blue colour. There's a small stream that flew out from that. I'll come to that in a moment. 
Now, because of the location and the way it was built up, it is very easily defended. And hence, for 400 years, Israel failed to conquer the entirety of the promised land that God gave to them. It was an impregnable stronghold. This made the Jebusites overconfident, and that's why they were able to mock David and his soldiers and saying, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. So what they are saying is that the, the fortress is so strong, I do not have to put soldiers and archers to, to fight you. I put a blind man and I put a lame man here, also you cannot come in. That's what it means. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They were so confident. But the way the Bible goes on is that it's just a matter of fact. This David took the city. Now, the capture of Jerusalem has one or two points I want to, to uh, focus on. Us. The, the king and his men. So the king and his men. David led his men from the start, from the front, not from behind. 1 Samuel 18, uh, 8, 19, 20, Israel wanted a king who can go out before them to fight their battles. Now that David is made the king of the entire nation of Israel, he continued to live up to that. He led his men from the front. And in a matter of, matter of factly, the Bible records for us in verse 7, nevertheless, now the fault is so strong, the Jebusites said, I put a blind man, I put a lame man, also you cannot take the fort. But nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. And from the text which was read for us, it says that if you want to take, you must go up the water shaft. So this is the water shaft. So the city needs water. You can encamp around the city and hold it as a siege. But as long as there's water, they can bring in water, they can last for a long time. And when there's water coming in, there's always water coming out. And what David did was that he attacked Jebus through the water shaft. They must have climbed, I don't know, I've read so many commentaries, nobody actually knows what this difficult passage was. They must have climbed out from the water shaft to inside the city and attack it from the inside, or at least cause a disruption or open the gates. I am a fan of the Lord of the Rings. And for those of you who are, you will remember one incident when they were defending a fort and the enemy blew up the walls through a small river that comes out from the fort. David nevertheless took the city by going through a weak point of the stronghold. Some applications. Now, when we invite Jesus to be king of our lives, and all of us have, we need to know that he can conquer all strongholds of sin. As forgiven sinners, we are to confess, obey, and yield to him any unsurrendered stronghold of sin in our lives. And just as Jebus was right in the center of the promised land. There could be strongholds of our sin right in the middle of our lives that has yet to be surrendered to Jesus. 
to be conquered in this entirety. And I pray that as our Spirit works through us, the Holy Spirit can show us some of these strongholds in our lives and that we can surrender them to Jesus so that He can conquer those strongholds of sin in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. We need to throw off sin so that we can be pure. Then we can run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Finally, the consolidation of the city. After David and his men have captured Jebus or Jerusalem, David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up an area around it from the terraces inwards. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. In other um, versions, it says the Lord of hosts was with him. The application is quite direct. As David conquered Jebus or Jerusalem, he renamed it, he took up residence, and he strengthened it. He built it from whatever terraces inwards. So too must we build up our spiritual stronghold after God has taken control of it so that we can have that discipline and, and be able to be fit for heavenly use, to be pleasing for Him to use us for His kingdom's purposes. So that's the application for us. And in closing, when all the tribes of Israel gathered around um, David to make him king, the key difference is that in this instance, there was no impending military crisis, no army marching towards Israel, none. No danger, no pressing danger. Saul is dead along with his sons. No Philistine attack, no Ammonite threat. Yet, they come to him. They may be late in coming to him because they already knew David was to be their king and anointed by God, but they came nevertheless this time. Better late than never. In the proper spirit of recognition and obedience to God to make David their king. The application for us is this. It is never too late. We can still turn to God and make Him to be our King. We know that God wants not only a piece of us, but the entire person that He has created. The Israelites knew that, but they delayed. They preferred Saul and his sons. But at the end, they came to recognize and acknowledge God's anointed to be their king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kingship in our lives.
We confess before you that there may be strongholds in our lives, yet unconquered, unsurrendered. We ask your Spirit to move in us, to convict us, to show us areas which are displeasing to you. And we ask that you would do a work in us to cleanse us, that we shall be white as snow. To the end that, Lord, each and every one of us and the church as a whole may recognize Jesus as king in totality of our lives. And in so doing, Lord, you can use us for your kingdom's glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. And we ask that you continue to work in us until the day of your coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.